Hey, good morning, Christ Church, and all of you who have joined with us, maybe for the first time online this morning. If that is you, we are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us in this way together this morning. And before we jump into God's Word, just wanted to say a note of thank you uh, to so many of you who have continued to invest in our church financially during this season. And uh, not only has God provided for us in very, very significant ways over the last couple months, but He's also above and beyond that. Uh, there have been many of you that have given into a benevolence fund. And so this is a fund that is available to help people who have financial needs within our congregation, within our church family. And so uh, I just want to say thank you for those of you who continue to just trust God with your finances and invest. And let's continue to do that in the weeks, in the months ahead together. Let's continue to band together, keep investing. And if you are interested in participating with us financially in the work that God has given us to do, uh, you, can, you can participate with us financially by going to our website. There's a simple way uh, you can give there as well as through mail or also through your online or through your mobile phone. Uh, you can text uh, ChristChurchSM uh, to 77977 and continue to support us in that way. And so with that, uh, why don't you uh, join with me as we turn to God in prayer and just ask that he would speak to us as we open up our Bibles. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, we praise you that you have not left us alone in this chaos, but you have actually spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us and we ask, God, that even now as we open up our Bibles, that you might open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that in attending to your voice, we might be changed. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. So we just uh, finished singing this song called God of Your Word, and it has this refrain in the song. It says, if you said it, we believe it. You know, if you said it, we believe it. You know, I, I won't sing it because the band just did it, and they did such a nice job, and I won't do such a nice job. But I want to call your attention to just that phrase, if you said it, we believe it. And it's this strong, confident assurance that God has given us promises. He has given us good and beautiful words that we can hold on to, we can cling to, we can believe in the midst of uh, the difficult situations we find ourselves in. And, you know, we've been in this series in the book of Psalms, and here in the book of Psalms, we are given all kinds of strong and beautiful and very buoyant promises from God, great words of assurance that we can hold on to, that we can believe, that can bring center in the midst of the chaos. Words like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Or Psalm 91, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Or Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord, he will sustain you. Or Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And when we encounter these strong assurances and promises of God, most of us know what to do with them. We hold on to them. We hold them in our minds. We speak them to ourselves. We bring them uh, to people in the hospital who are sick and dying and just need words of encouragement. And we put them on coffee mugs and on calendars. And there are all kinds of verses like that throughout the Psalter. But this morning, I want to draw your attention not to those strong and beautiful and buoyant promises this morning, what I want us to, to look at 
are the darker passages in the book of Psalms, ones that are not full of words of assurance, uh, but, but words that strike many of us as harsh and ugly because they sound to us like vindictive cries for revenge. For example, in Psalm 58, speaking of the wicked, the psalmist says, oh God, break their teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions. Oh Lord, let them vanish like water that runs away. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into the slime, like the stillborn who never sees the light of day. Or Psalm 109, and you can almost imagine, you know, the psalmist talking to a psychotherapist, you know, about this person who's deeply wounded and wronged them. And the therapist says, well, do you have anything else left to say? Is that it? He says, yeah, I've got something else to say. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife be a widow. And the therapist says, really? And he says, yes, and may his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. And may the creditor seize all he has, and may strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. And let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity to his fatherless children. And then perhaps the darkest and most vindictive of all of the words in the Psalter, and actually the one that we're going to focus our attention on this morning, Psalm 137, verses 8 through 9, we heard them read, O daughter of Zion, doomed to be destroyed, happy is he who repays you with what you have done to us. Happy shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock." I don't know, did anybody else have a difficult time after hearing that, you know, saying thanks be to God, feel a little bit uncomfortable with that? And Christians have rightly asked, what are we supposed to do with verses like these? You know, what are we supposed to do? You know, I mean, Jesus taught us to love and to pray for and to bless our enemies, not to speak these harsh and ugly, vindictive words of anger over them. And yet here they are in the Bible. And so we find ourselves asking, what are we supposed to do with this? Or rather, what might God want to do with these passages in our lives? And that's the question that I want us to reflect on this morning. And my thesis this morning is simply this. The Psalms of Vengeance, and listen very carefully, the Psalms of Vengeance, like Psalm 137, when used thoughtfully and prayerfully, can actually play a very unique role in keeping us centered in the midst of a chaotic word that is often marked by a profound sadness and anger and rage. And so uh, we'll need some work to get to that thesis. And so what I want to do is I want to just invite you to join with me as we walk through the text. And then I want to stand out and just make two observations that might apply to our lives. Uh, but what I want you to see is that the Psalm 137, it unfolds in three distinct movements. There's verses 1 to 3, 4 to 6, and verse 7 to 9. And each one of those three movements corresponds uh, to three emotional states that the psalmist finds himself in, of sadness, uh, which then yields to resistance, which then explodes in a seething rage. And so let's tick through each one of these. Notice, uh, first, it begins with deep sadness, verse 1 of chapter 37. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. 
So the opening words of this psalm locate it in a very specific time and place. Uh, The song is composed while the psalmist is in exile in Babylon. And what that means is he is living in this profound time of grief and humiliation. Uh, The Babylonian empire has crushed Israel and destroyed her temple. And now they have taken uh, some of the young exiles back with them into Babylon. And so the wound of exile is still raw and painful. And so this song is being sung out of deep sadness and loss. And to add insult to injury, it says in verse two that the, the captors required of them songs. You know, the psalmists in Israel were known for the beauty of their music, and now their Babylonian oppressors require that they take their music and take some of their most profound songs celebrating God's love for the city of God, Zion, the city that God would protect, and as an act of mockery to rub salt into their wounds, to twist the knife deeper, the captors are saying, sing us those songs, captives, Sing us the songs about how God will always protect your city, Israel. And then notice in verse four, the psalmist moves from this profound place of sadness and humiliation, and he turns to deep resolve. Notice what he says. He says in verse four, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof in my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And so the psalmist makes a pledge. He says, look, if I forget Jerusalem, might my hand be withered and the tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. You know, the withered hand would no longer be able to play the songs and the tongue would no longer be able to sing the songs. And it's as if he's saying, look, God, may your song ever be in my mouth and in my heart to continue to stir my memory and my hope. And so he moves from how can I sing to how can I not sing about Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of hope. Because one day I do believe Babylonian, Babylon, the Babylonian empire will not have the final say. God will reassert the beauty of the city of God, Jerusalem. You know, in his book, The Cross and the Lichen Tree, uh, black liberation theologian, James Cone, uh, he, he makes this, uh, he, he, in his first chapter, he draws out kind of like the world, the very dark and oppressive and violent world in the South and the lynchings. And he, he, he paints a picture of these lynchings that would take place where literally thousands of white people would gather around with their children and they would be eating their ice cream cones and taking pictures of a black man strung up to die on, on, a, on a tree. And whereas the white children might get an ice cream and jeer, the, le- the black children would run and hide in the shadows terrified. And in this kind of like dark and oppressive and very painful space, James Cone asks, how did rural blacks survive the terrors of this era? And then he says this, he says, self-defense and protest were out of the question. But he says, there were other forms of resistance. And then he says this, he says, for most blacks, it was the blues and religion that offered the chief weapons of resistance. 
And it's interesting, you know, uh, the, the great early kind of predecessors of those in the South who sang the blues were the psalmists, who in the face of their own oppressors and in the face of their own violent captors, they stimulated hope and they reaffirmed their humanity by singing their own blues. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. But we will not cease singing the songs of Jerusalem because hope is not altogether extinguished. And so they moved from deep sadness to, to resistance against the oppression of the Babylonian empire. It will not always have its final day. And they finally move from sadness to resistance and it ultimately explodes in rage. And look at what it says in verse seven. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Now stop there. You know, he, he mentions here the Edomites, and the Edomites were the old ancient brother of Israel. And they actually lived to the north of Israel. And when the Babylonian empire came in to attack, the Edomites let them in and gave them safe passage and ultimately joined in the sacking of Jerusalem. And so the psalmist says, Lord, may you remember the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare. And then he says this, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he who repays you. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now, what's clear from this text is that he lays these two statements side by side. Blessed is, shall be the one who repays you. And so right now, the psalmist is crying out for retribution. He's calling out for exact and just retribution. As has been done to me and my family and our city and our nation, may it be done to them. And then as a parallel clause, he says, blessed, oh, or, or how happy shall be the one who takes their little ones and dashes them against the rock. And so what he's talking about here is payback for what the Babylonians did to Israel, perhaps even what they did to the psalmist's children himself. Now, sometimes careless commentators will talk about the murder of innocent children in these verses, but although we name these children as innocent, the psalmist would most definitely not have done so. And the reason for that is simple. It's just that ancient societies were not individualistic, but collectivists. You know, we think in our day and age, in our individualistic society, that the primary, most fundamental social unit is the individual, and that the individual matters above all else. But in collectivist societies, it was not the individual that was the most significant unit, but the collective whole. It was the community. And so in individualist societies, only individuals can be guilty of punishment, but in collectivist societies, the entire communities can be guilty. And so the children in the psalmist's eyes are hardly innocent. Now, it's not that the kids had done something themselves, but the children represent the continuation of the evil and the tyrannical Babylon. And by wishing the death of these kids, the psalmist is wishing for the complete and the utter destruction of the empire. One commentator uh, puts the phrase, puts the verse like this. He says, happy is he who puts an end to your self-renewing domination. 
The kids represent the future of the evil empire, and that's why he wants them dead too. Now, I don't go through all of that to, to take away the horror of these verses. I mean, this is certainly a dark imagination that is fueled by rage that speaks these words. But it is important for us to understand the psalm on its own terms and in its own context. And so you say, okay, so we've walked through the psalm, we understand it on its own terms, in its own context, I still don't like it much, um, but what am I supposed to do with this, you know? And I want to suggest this psalm can at least do two things in us, it can do two things for us, it can do two things with us. And I want to suggest that number one, this psalm can make us more sensitive to the anger and to the deep sadness of the oppressed. This psalm can, number one, make us more sensitive to, this, to the angry rage and the deep sadness of the oppressed. You know, I want to put you in a, in a little scenario right now. You know, um, you, you wake up tomorrow morning and you get up. It's a beautiful morning. You go outside, you sit down to uh, read the Bible and you open up to the book of Psalms, and I've been encouraging you to pray through the Psalter, you know, and so you've been praying through these Psalms, and it's such a beautiful, lovely morning, you know, the birds are, are chirping, and, and it's a cool morning air, and it feels so nice outside, and then you come across these words. What do you do with them? Do you just pass right on by and pretend like they weren't there? That's what we do with a lot of Bible passages. Well, I want to suggest that if you stop and you pay attention to them, it might have a power to do something to you. Let me just ask you this question. What do you do when you find yourself wishing violence on another person's children? When doing violence to the parents is not enough, you actually want to take it out on the kids too. Now, I know what probably most of you are saying. You're saying, look, I, I don't know because I've never wished the murder of anyone else's children. I've never wanted to do violence on, on people's parents or their children. And, and of course, that's good. And I say the same thing. And, and good for us. I mean, how fortunate and how lucky we are, you know? I have no doubt the psalmist would have been thrilled to find out that, that we have no need of praying one, Psalm 137. And I think God himself would be pleased to find out that you, that I, we have no need of praying Psalm 137. But the psalmist wasn't so lucky. City burned temple destroyed, daughters raped, mothers murdered, families torn apart, ripped away from family and friends, and then put under a systematic brainwashing so that they could be used in service of the very empire that destroyed them, and against whose power they have no power. They're absolutely, utterly powerless to do anything about their suffering, about their condition. Listen, it is not your, it is not my moral superiority or our tolerance or our modern sensibilities that give us no space, that give us no place for Psalm 137. It's privilege. And that privilege is not shared by the psalmist, nor is it shared by millions of people across our world in war-torn nations, nor is it shared by many people in our own nation, and maybe it's not even shared by some of you who are watching with us right now. But here is what we encounter in this psalm. You know, this psalm didn't drop out of heaven into a book. This psalm was written by a real person in a real place 
undergoing real and traumatic and deeply painful suffering from an oppressive empire against whom he was powerless. And what I want to suggest to you is that when you're reading a psalm like this and you come across these words, even if you are a person of privilege, this psalm can be a cup of cold water thrown in your face. The jarring language, the distasteful words that are spoken can just be a slap in your face to say, look, you know, you are not the only person and the place you live in your life right now is not the only place we can find ourselves. It, it can be something that wakes us up from our slumber of privilege. And it can remind us that there are real people in real places right now today in our world and in our nation that are suffering underneath immense and painful and dark and oppressive power against which they find themselves powerless. And it's fascinating to me that in the word of God, in this text, the sacred text, God creates space for the angry rage of the oppressed. And I just wonder sometimes how much space you and I might create to listen and to sit with the angry rage of people who are profoundly sad and terribly oppressed and persecuted and suffering. And what this psalm might, it might have the power to do is actually slap you in the face and say, wake up, there's people in our world that need these words, that are actually praying these words, that this is the space out of, this is the, the sadness and the pain and the anger where they find themselves. Now, can you pause and can you pray for them? And maybe actually in creating space in your own prayer life, even as God creates space in his own prayer book, the book of Psalms, for the angry rage of the oppressed, it actually may stimulate you and me to move out into action and do something about it. To speak up, to move into spaces, to give time and money and resources and our gifts away to actually acting and speaking on the behalf of those who might find themselves succumbing underneath a power that they cannot combat themselves. And so number one, this psalm can make us more sensitive to the plight of the oppressed, to their own suffering, and to their own darkness. You know, it was Harper Lee in that great book, To Kill a Mockingbird, one of our family's favorites, that said this, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. And these Psalms actually create an opportunity, a space for you to actually find yourself and consider, consider things from someone else's point of view and to climb around in their skin and walk around in it. But this psalm not only helps us kind of come to grips with the anger, the sadness of those people in our world who, who are oppressed, who are suffering, and, and, and it is immense and there are many. But this psalm also teaches us what to do with our own desire for vengeance. Now let me go back to a second scenario. So in your first scenario, you were up in the morning, you were reading your Bible, maybe by the pool, in the cool of the day with the birds chirping and you come across this psalm. But now I want you to imagine the night before and now you're lying in bed 
and you're not thinking about the Bible. Instead, you're thinking about somebody who hurts you, somebody who deeply wounded you. Now, I know this isn't all of you. Uh, many of you, you're magnanimous and you're very forgiving and you actually don't find yourself struggling with retaliation and a desire for revenge. And if that's you, God bless you, try to live in that space and stay there. But some of you don't find yourself there or at least you have found yourself in places, dark places where you wish you wouldn't go, but you go there mentally and you start thinking through that ex-spouse who betrayed you and then divorced you and then took the money that you built up and now you find yourself, want, you, 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 the justice system didn't help you and you find yourself wanting to exact revenge on them. And you think about ways to do that. You imagine what it, be, what it might be like for them to feel what you felt, for them to hear the words that you heard. And we can multiply situations. An abusive parent, you're imagining them. Uh, maybe the, the government itself, which you have found to be actually oppressive in some ways, and you are... Th but, but there might be all kinds of spaces where you find yourself with the desire for vengeance and with the desire for rage, and you want to act out on it. And this text is here to help you. You know, one scholar put it like this. He said, the real problem lies not in the violence and anger in the Psalms, but the presence of violence and anger within us and among us. Now, I think it's true that a follower of Jesus really shouldn't be praying these words. You shouldn't be feeling these things. You shouldn't be feeling a desire for vengeance. Uh, you should desire to bless your enemies and to pray for them. I mean, that's what you should do. You shouldn't feel these things. But what if you do? What then? Well, I can think of only three ways you can respond. You can act it out, you know, maybe get a gun. And I think probably people like us wouldn't do that. You can deny it, but you know what happens when you deny it and you kind of push it under the surface? That, that deep desire for vengeance and rage, it starts popping out in all kinds of unhealthy ways that are difficult for the people around you. But the third thing you can do is you can give it over to your therapist. Or in this case, you can give it over to God, who in this text acts as the great divine therapist, who says, come to me and speak those truths that you are afraid to speak in polite conversation with others. God says, there is nothing that is going on in your hearts that is out of place for your conversation and your relationship with me. And the simple reason for that is that God doesn't want the pretended or the false you. God cannot do anything with a pretended and false self. God wants the real you. He wants your real heart. He wants to know what's really going on inside of you. And that is why the Psalms are such a gift. The Psalms are not... Um, you know, the, the, nothing is kind of like taken out. Instead, like what happens is, is what's going on inside the human heart is brought into the presence of God because it's welcome there as a space that God can do something about it. God says, come and hand it over to me and I will take care of it. And you know, parents know about this. You know, you have kids and they're in a fight in the backyard and, um, uh, one of them uh, comes in and they have a little scratch with some blood on their hands 
And like a psalmist, they must use great hyperbole. And they say, if you don't do something quick, I'm going to die. I'm going to bleed to death. I need a... And so you run into the, you know, the, the cabinet and you get a Band-Aid and you put it on the child's hand. And then the, the child, so they're not finished. They say, but what are you going to do with him? You need to go get him. And what do you do as a wise parent? Well, a wise parent doesn't say, now shut up, child. Don't talk like that. Uh, nor does a wise parent say, now let me get a notepad and write down, son, exactly what you want me to do with your brother. No, a wise parent says, I have heard you. And why don't you leave that with me and trust me and I'll take care of it. And this is what God is inviting us to do in this psalm. Where you find yourself in deep sadness because of grief and pain, because of loss, because of hurts, because of wounds, and it feels like it, it can just erupt in vengeance and rage, God says, rather than vomiting it out on another person, bring it to me and hand it over to me. And in so doing, it is a profound act of trust, a profound act of trust. Because in that moment, your vengeance is, is transferred from your own heart over to the heart of God. Now, of course, when the psalmist speaks these words, you know, blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. There's nothing here that says that God's like, yes, that's exactly what I'm gonna do. No, but once the, once the, the, the prayer has yielded their own vengeance and anger over to God, it's now entrusted into God's hand for God to do what's best. And God is free to act, to do whatever God will do with our own pain. And we can trust him. We can trust him. You can trust God with even your anger and your hurt and your pain. And you can trust him because there's one final thing that I just wanna draw to your attention. And it's actually not from this Psalm because it's not, it's not here. But the psalmist, he not only, these psalms not only, you know, make us sensitive if we let them to the suffering of others, to the oppressed, not only do these psalms encourage us to actually bring our own desire for vengeance, our own anger to speech and hand it over to God, but thirdly and finally, I wanna share with you something that this psalm doesn't do, but actually Jesus does do. And that's that it teaches us how our own vengeance and rage can be transformed into deep forgiveness and release of others around us. You know, at this time, I want to invite our band to come up. And as they're coming up, uh, we're going to be preparing to go into a space of communion. And as uh, they're coming up and we're kind of getting ready, I, I, just, I just want to say this. You know, the psalm moves through these three places from deep sadness to resistance and then ultimately to deep anger and rage. And in Jesus, what we discover is a God who is not there simply to enact all of our vengeance and our rage upon the world. Rather, what we find is a God who comes into our world and immerses himself into the deep sadness and the pain of this world. Do you realize that Jesus himself actually immersed himself into the very types of things that provoke the deepest kinds of anger and rage in our world? You know, Jesus, 
was hunted as a refugee, just like Syrians, chased out of his own country and place and home by an oppressive, violent dictator who couldn't stand any threats to his own power. Jesus and his family lived in Egypt as a family of undocumented workers. Jesus travels back across vast expanses of desert, no doubt under threat of his own life, to come back from Egypt. Jesus ultimately lives his life not among the wealthy and not among the privileged, but among the poor and the powerless and those who suffer hungry. He said, you know, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And ultimately, Jesus Christ entered into the greatest depths of injustice in the cross when he was tried and ultimately put to death, the death of a common criminal unjustly by the powers that be. James Cone, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, he points out that, that although, yes, the, the blues and their religion gave blacks in the South the strength to reaffirm their humanity and to rekindle their hope. He says, ultimately, the, the thing that gave them strength to endure and persevere, the thing that helped them carry on and to keep moving forward was not simply the blues and their religion. It was the very specific particular claim of their religion. And it was their experience of the very presence of Jesus who was crucified, another who was lynched on a tree, who was their brother in suffering. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that affirmed that ultimately it is not the injustice, it is not the oppression, it's not everything that makes for human sadness and rage that will have the final word in this world. It is God's justice, it is God's victory, it is God's unconquering love that burst out of the tomb on Sunday that ultimately will have the final say in this world. And it is that good news when it sinks down into your heart that will help break the power of your own rage, it will actually make you more sensitive to the heartache and pain that issues in rage of people around you who might be suffering from, from, from things that you know nothing of. It is that good news that will enable you to keep moving forward and keep living out this life of faith and trust in God and that will center you in the midst of a chaotic world of sadness and anger. And this morning we turn now to the Lord's table because it is here in this practice that our faith is nurtured in the God who became flesh among us so that he might become killable, so that he might enter into deep sadness and pain and be broken and his blood shed so that his healing love might transform our vengeful hearts so that we might become a different people in this world. And so I wanna just invite you now as we prepare to share in the bread and the cup, just to pause and I'm gonna pray over us. And then I'll invite us into sharing together in the bread and the cup. Our great God and Father, we come to you now You want our honesty, 
You want what's really deep in our hearts. You know what's there anyway. And I just pray, oh God, that you would enable us to be a people that speak to you freely and honestly and trustingly. But would you also make us a people that is overcome and transformed by your deep love that you have shown for us in the cross of Jesus. And we pray that even now, as we share in this table that you have welcomed us to, would you nourish and sustain our faith? Would you make us more aware of the brokenness and the blood that is shed needlessly around our world? And would you make us agents of your love and healing in this world and people of deep hope? And we ask this in Christ's name.